yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. say something. That's great. Burl Berry is here. Yeah. I'm Howard Lapidus, and it's a pleasure to be hosting the show today because Burl, <laughs> after being in radio for 47 years, cannot figure out how to get his, his headsets on. Our Why guest is on, our guest is waiting and, and everything. You know what? Um, you want to use 47. <laughs> yeah. try, try 80. Yeah, you're right. 80 years. I was being I was on radio before Marconi and Tesla even talked about it. There you go. Well, so, so, so talk about something. Remember, you were the host of the show. I, I could be the host. Are we starting now? We've started. Oh, live from the Gleaming Streamline Studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, where industry and nature work hand-in-hand to create a better life for all of us. following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. That, too. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the yes. man right there, Howard Lapidus, manager to the star. Guy in the corner who we seldom let talk, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. And I'm quite distressed about this. Yeah, you should be. Hey, but you know the manager to the star thing? Yeah. When Matt does it, it's funny. When I do it, it's factual. <laughs> All right. That made him laugh. All right. He's an easy mark. All right. I am an easy mark. Oh, Mark, yes. Mark is an easy mark. That, that's true. So, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about today, because we should talk about what we're going to talk about. Otherwise, otherwise, why are we talking about? Why would we talk about it? I think we've talked enough about that. No, 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 no. you didn't get a part in that. Sorry, but I, I try. Yes, I know. Hey, Burrow, start yeah. the show. Well, you know, several uh, months ago, we had a guest on the program who, for reasons unexplained, uh, became a pen pal of a serial killer, and. Uh, it upset him <laughs> for a period of time. The serial killer? Yeah. Well, you know, being the, the confidant of a murderous human. Uh, our guest today has had a similar yet different experience, and that's attorney Ann K. Howard. If you look at the picture on your radio very closely, I'll hold the picture up to the microphone, you can see she is what we would term a crime hottie. Yeah, there's no question about that, but... <laughs> And you're not going to believe this, but he actually held your picture up to the microphone, and he did it like somebody could actually see. <laughs> well, it's good someone couldn't, because I'm 51 years old, and I, I think that's kind of inaccurate, but I'm deeply flattered. Let well, me get that straight. I'm very flattered. Let's put it this way. You were in kindergarten, and I was married uh, twice already, so you know, take it easy. Oh, you're geriatric. Okay, yes. now I get it. There okay. you go. And he's old, too. <laughs> I'm not that old. I kid myself. Burl's older. Oh, thank and you. And Burl's man. also finally got headsets. Oh, so I there feel we like go. A new man. So we now start start the show the way you're supposed to. Our guest is here. She's Our lovely. Our guest, the brilliant and talented attorney, Ann K. Howard, who has uh, so far survived at least one or two interviews on the radio. But uh, I have. You survived Dan Zapansky. Hey, was she on Dan Zapansky's show? I don't think yeah. so. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, I, I did that yesterday. That was a great show. I've, I've also done some local shows in Connecticut with a rock station in Connecticut. And if I could get through uh, those shows, I think I can get through anything. Oh, you don't know what you're... <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> no, you'll be fine. Dan Zupanski listens to our show and takes notes. <laughs> and, and Mark is showing off that he was listening to you on Dan's show uh, just before this show so he could prep. Oh, uh, cool. The rest of us actually do the work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I did the work, and I listened. Oh, is that right? Okay, we'll take over then. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Now, don't bother. Right. Uh, <laughs> as a practicing attorney, when will you be done practicing? You know, that's a great question. I decided on April 1st to stop taking all new cases because this true crime passion of mine has totally taken control of my life. It now is. That I, I wrote this book, and it came out on Tuesday. Yep. And and every day since then, I've had a podcast. And, and then in May, I had the two shows that are airing on Netflix, uh, Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer and 21st Century Serial Killers. We had a production company come to my house in May to film those shows, and, you know, I, I'm just, and I'm working on a new book now, and, I, you know, I, I just can't 
do two jobs at one time, so I decided to retire early. So as soon as I finish the 50 or so cases that I have in my law practice in the year ahead, I'm, I'm done with the practice of law, and I'm going to focus entirely on writing true crime. Before we get to the true crime, what, what kind of law have you been practicing in the 50 clients you've got left to go? Um, what's the, the, the range and bound of what they, uh, you're representing them for? Well, I primarily focus on Social Security disability. Um, you know, early in my practice, uh, years ago when I started practicing, I did a little bit of uh, public defense, I did a little bit of divorce and miscellaneous civil cases along with Social Security. But as time went on, I focused on, on the disability. I, I even worked for two years for the Social Security Administration writing the judge's decision. So, uh, was, that more, I, was that more fun doing that or more profitable doing that or both? To work for the government? No, that's um, the, forget the profits there. I, I mean, you know, focusing on... Um, no uh, profits there. No, I know that. <laughs> but focusing on what you've been focusing on. Yeah, well, actually, you know, to date, because the book just came out, I haven't made a penny yet from anything I've done. And well, I, welcome to the club. I've been a true yeah, crime author. There you go. <laughs> God knows He's where. got 12 books out there, not a dime. <laughs> you know, it's funny, because I do get some criticism publicly. I have a Serial Murders in Connecticut Facebook site with a, a, an accompanying um, Facebook page. Uh, uh, I have a blog site with a Facebook page. And a lot of times people have this misconception that, you know, it's been said that I'm lining my pocket oh, all yes. this money from writing true crime. And first off, the book just came out Tuesday. Second off, I think people have a misconception that writing true crime leads to just millions of dollars. And, God, you know, I, I haven't seen any yet. But it's, it's also, you know, cost me a lot because just purchasing trial transcripts and <laughs> oh, legal yeah. work, uh, all the uh, time off work I took to write the book in the last three years, I should have been making real money in my day job rather than wasting time with uh, this this non-money-making effort of true crime. You're welcome to the club, Ms. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been but doing Pearl, it for decades. Pearl, you've been I doing it for decades, way. but, but you, you are not an attorney. No, you're my brother's a, the attorney. A, you're a disc jockey. Yeah. <laughs> I made more money playing the hits. Yes, you did. <laughs> but I'll tell you, you, you will discover as an attorney and as a true crime writer that uh, the laws or the degree of cooperation you're going to receive varies from state to state. In Kansas, for example, if you ever decide to write a true crime book about a case in Kansas, and under the Public Information Act, you say, I'd like all the uh, police reports, please, on the murder of uh, Joan Smith. And what they'll give you is the cover page. Huh. Anything else that has any real information is entirely at the discretion of the police captain. Oh, I feel sorry for those writers in Kansas. That's why I didn't do the book in Kansas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have that yeah. to look forward to. It really yeah. does vary. Uh, a lot of people also call you a bloodsucker. Mm. And uh, that you're living off the pain of others by... Yes. Now, no one says that about newspapers. <laughs> I thought the same thing. I, in fact, I had a discussion early on when I was writing this book about Connecticut's most prolific serial killer. I bumped into a reporter who was also covering this. And uh, she said, yeah, uh, someone asked me, if uh, why don't you write a book about this? It seems like a pretty dramatic story. And she said, well, I, I just couldn't bring myself ethically to do that. Mm. And I thought, oh, <laughs> what's that all about? You know, what's the difference between writing a book about it and covering it for front page? How about, how about you ready? One word. Yeah. Ready? Mm -hmm. Jealousy. <laughs> you said it, not me. No, I did say <laughs> it because, because I don't know. No, and, and I don't come in on either side of the aisle on this stuff. I, I don't write books and I don't write articles. But, but, them's that write articles would love to write books and a story. And if they can't, then they become jealous of those that do and start to heave in the mud, which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. I, I, I would agree with you there. I mean, of course, there are always those, those reporters that end up writing great true crime books. But absolutely, it's very different from just writing, you know, the front page headline. Than, than well, because you'll spend a year or more of your life or several years of your life investigating and, mm -hmm. and trying to break down barriers of communication to get information that no one else has, as mm -hmm. you've done in, in this first one. 
And exactly. And and yet, if someone devotes one afternoon to doing an you know an inverse pyramid article for the front page, yeah, that's okay. You spend a year or more of your life, and suddenly you're profiting off the pain of others. You evil exactly. thing. For for Isn't the for, strange. for the sake of our audience, tell them about the first one. What are we, what are we talking about? About book. About yeah. your book, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's about uh, a man who went on a nine-month killing spree in Connecticut from February of 2003 until uh, mid-October of 2003. His name is William Devin Howell. He's from Virginia. And uh, when, when I first wrote to him back in July of 2015, uh, to see if he was interested in my writing a book about him. He was incarcerated for one of the seven murders that took place in, in Connecticut. Uh, there were seven bodies found behind this really busy strip mall in New Britain. And uh, it's on this commercial highway right across from a huge uh, shopping mall. And uh, in some state-owned forest behind that strip mall, the police had found uh, seven bodies uh, buried in a state-owned, unadulterated 15 acres of, of wooded, swampy land. Uh, so I thought, wow, this is, this is uh, a good thing to write about. And so I wrote to him, and quickly he, he did write back to me. Uh, he was open to the idea, and then over the course of the next three years, we... Uh, got to know each other, maybe a little too much I got to know him. Um, you know, I, I wrote to him. Uh, he wrote me hundreds of pages of letters over the course of the last few years. We had uh, monthly face-to-face -face prison visits, phone calls, and fi finally it culminated in his confessing those crimes to me uh, a few days after his guilty plea hearing in September of 2007. So then he was free, <laughs> to use a strange expression, to uh, give you details. Exactly, because for the first couple of years of our relationship, I didn't really ask for details. I think that's one of the reasons why he trusted right. me so much. Unlike a reporter, I wasn't looking to crack the case. Um, I was looking to get to know him, knowing all the while in the back of my mind, this man's a serial killer because the evidence was overwhelming against him at that time. Six out of seven DNA samples were found in this infamous murder mobile that he drove around in and <laughs> held his victims captive in and ultimately killed them in. So I knew this man was guilty, but uh, we kind of had an agreement that it would not be until legal resolution that he showed me all his cards. We, we would refer to it as the elephant in the room, mm -hmm. you know, that it, we were dancing around in our conversations, talking about everything and anything except the fact that he, he did these atrocities. But he promised me he would tell me, and he, he was true to his word. He did tell me over the course of the next few months um, each and every detail about how, when, why, where, everything. And, well, I would say fantastic. It reminds me, we mentioned Dan Zupansky, uh, of uh, his book about uh, Mr. Tearhouse, whatever it was, a uh, similar situation. Except that guy wanted to be famous. Mm -hmm. You know, he wanted to be known as the worst uh, killer uh, in the history of Canada. And, yeah. uh, but that's easy. Heck, yeah. I, I, I did that when I, I lived there for a decade, and I did that. So. Well, listen, my husband's Canadian. Oh, there you go. Well, there you go. <laughs> where, where is he from? He's originally from Nova Scotia. Oh, down east. We met at McGill University in Montreal when we were doing our undergrad degree. He was 19 and I was 20. What the heck got you to McGill, by the way? Well, I grew up in Massachusetts, and uh, my father actually went to dental school at McGill. Oh. And so... Uh, so you knew of it. Yeah, and then the year I started at McGill as an undergrad, my older brother was starting dental school at McGill. So my father shipped us both off there, and I think he was also hoping to pay a cheaper tuition, which actually uh, compared to that quality of an institution in America where I, I think of McGill as like an Ivy League. Uh, back then, it, I think it was about 5000 a year in tuition, which was a steal, yeah. um, you know, compared to going to, you know, uh, an Ivy League in New England. So how'd you like uh, Montreal? Even though you're from New England, how'd you like Montreal in January, February? <laughs> uh, oh, I remember. The, you know, in New England, it cracks me up because now I live in Connecticut. We, we uh, finally moved back to Connecticut. And 
And people here are crazy. They dress in shorts and windbreakers in the middle of January when it's, you know, 20 degrees out, okay? <laughs> now, in Montreal, there is a difference in temperature compared to Connecticut. Just that 10 to 20 degree difference makes all the world of difference. They, you don't dare in Montreal in the middle of winter go out in your shorts. In oh, no, 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 no. Because you're going to die. You're, I mean, I remember literally standing at the bus stop in Montreal, you know, with, with scarves wrapped around your nose. Because if you don't, you're going to get frostbite and your nose will fall off. <laughs> not that this That's has a common problem. Not that this story has much to do with what we're talking about <laughs> other than Montreal. But I was... I was uh, I would say circa 1971. In fact, uh, January 16th, 1971. <laughs> he knows it. I was. Uh, it was a Saturday, and I was uh, standing outside the, uh, the the forum, waiting to buy tickets for a uh, a, a, a Montreal uh, Habs game uh, against the Bruins. And I was uh, coming up from Boston, a Bruins fan, and uh, waited uh, maybe three hours, and the bank. Across the street, kept flashing the temperature minus 42. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and by the way, minus 44 Celsius and and uh, uh, Fahrenheit, uh, it's the same day. So, <laughs> so it's crazy. it was cold. And I swore to myself I would never ever go back to that part of the uh, the world again. And a year later, I moved there for a decade. So figure me <laughs> out. You, Strange you are man. glutton for punishment. Uh, that's uh, correct, uh, even today. And, and the saddest part of your story is that the Montreal Forum's not there anymore. No, we I know, I know. It, a month it, ago, and it's not the... Well, it's there physically, but it's like... Oh, some it's a, that's the true crime. Yeah, well, it's like, a, it's like a little shopping mall, but they have... Uh, there are still some seats set up with some right. fake, fake people sitting in them. <laughs> Just yes. like the old days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well, now, speaking, uh, speaking of uh, old shopping centers, you've got this fellow <laughs> killing seven people and planting them uh, in this particular area, was he like hoping to grow something out of that? Well, it is funny, you know, the, well, it's not funny, it's, and, and that's the wrong word, but uh, he did call it his garden, and that's why I called my book His Garden, Conversations with a Serial Killer. And he, uh, by trade, he was a landscaper. You know, that's how he made a living, mowing people's lawns, and he worked, he, he was a transient, you know, he lived in the back of this awful murder mobile of his. It was a 1985 Ford Econoline van, mm. and, uh, you know, he would sleep in the back and, and park at different grocery store parking lots at night and, and, and sleep, and how all his tools and lawnmowers were in the van. So, um, yeah, he buried them in a just a three-quarter of an acre space within that 15 acres. And when he initially confessed uh, his crimes to another jailhouse inmate in 2014, which really helped prosecutors to get the case against him, um, he actually drew this guy a diagram, not unlike you'd probably draw, you know, how you want to plant your bushes in your garden, uh, this uh, uh, diamond-shaped diagram of the burial ground and where the graves were located. Hmm. Guy's nuts. Okay, we got that yeah. established. Uh, now, you dispel a lot of myths about serial killers in this book. Uh, people think they're evil geniuses. Mm -hmm. Is this guy evil? Is he a genius, or is he just really screwed up? Really screwed up. Uh, certainly his actions, his deeds are as evil as evil can be. I mean, he has brought such suffering to not not just by stealing the lives of his seven victims, but uh, in, in researching and writing the book, I became acquainted with several family members of the victims. And when you see the devastation that he has brought that will linger for generations to come in these families, um, you know, certainly he, he, he is an evil man. He has committed evil things. Um, with respect to, is he a genius? Hardly. No, he's not a genius. Uh, but he's not dumb either. And I think that's why he got away with it for quite a while. Many years he got away with this. Um, he, he, even though in the letters he writes me there's lots of spelling mistakes and he, you know, quit high school when he was in 10th grade, um, you know, he, he's got a strong, sound mind. He's got an innate intelligence, I find. And in the commission of his crimes, he was certainly really careful 
to do things such as remove the license tag whenever he was about to go on this, you know, kill someone that night. Uh, he would distribute the um, belongings, the personal belongings of each of his victims after disposing of them. He would um, put them in random trash cans, public trash cans all over the city. So, you know, he, he, he was not dumb in that way. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's definitely got a mental sickness. In, in his case, I'd say it's a paraphilia, which is really what the majority of serial killers have. It's some kind of a sexual sadism. Yeah, and yet, with most people that we think of that their other motivation is, is sexual, while there may be a sexual component, for the, shall we say, situational child molester or the so-called sexually motivated serial killer, it really tells me, if you agree with me, more about power and mm. control than it is about any sexual gratification. Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, when he shared with me um, his life story, I could see that the, the common theme in everything was this overwhelming sense of powerlessness. Just from the fact that he didn't really have any social status, he didn't have any job skills to speak of. Um, you know, the mother of his children uh, took those children out of state, uh, married another man. He was never allowed to see them again. And then what really, I think, had a huge effect on him was that at the age of 16, because he drank a lot, he started drinking every day at the age of 12. Okay, so that's a problem. Um, and when he was 16 and got his license, he got a DUI within the first year of having his license. Big surprise. And thereafter, he never was able to hold a valid driver's license. So for years in his 20s and early 30s before the commission of these crimes, he was chronically incarcerated just because he kept getting caught and pulled over for driving without a license. And it made him, I think, so angry, and it made him feel so powerless in the face of this legal bureaucracy um, that I think he, he really channeled that rage into those sexual horrific deeds when they were happening. Yeah. So uh, you were the power. So you were uh, communicating with him before he really spilled the beans with you, correct? Yeah, actually, when I first got in touch with him. Um, oh, uh, he, he had not even been charged with six of the seven murders yet. Now, I knew because there was a TV conference that was nationally and locally shown where the state's attorney in May of 2015 stood up with this guy, Bill Howell's mugshot behind him and said, we have a person of interest in the serial murders that took place behind the strip mall. So, obviously, this guy was about to be charged. Um, but he didn't officially get charged until a few months after we started um, uh, writing to each other. And so for the majority of the time that we were calling and writing and visiting, the six remaining murders that he'd been charged with, that was an open case. He had defense counsel. Uh, litigation was pending. You know, he, had, he knew he was going to be going on trial for those murders. I, I hoped that he would plead guilty because the last thing I wanted to do another was twelve wait years another of waiting three or four years right <laughs> yeah. right that's a rough one uh, you know it comes up as you know do they want to be caught it's like uh, Bundy when uh, he asked what's, what's the state where I'll get the death penalty and they said Florida so he immediately escapes and goes to Florida <laughs> but so he'll get the death penalty but then he escapes and he's he's heading for the border making a run for the state border he gets there ahead of the cops and drives back and forth, back and forth, mm. waiting for them. Mm. And uh, I look at this guy, your, uh, your buddy here, if you pardon yeah. the expression. Yeah, my buddy. Yeah, Thanks your buddy. Yeah, my buddy. Yeah, and uh, although he says he did everything he could not to be caught, and he knows they're after him, does he crush the van? Does he get rid of the DNA evidence? No. He doesn't, and I've asked him about that because, again, he is pretty smart, and he knows how to cover his tracks, um, and, and he wonders if subconsciously mm -hmm. there was a part of him that did want to get caught. 
Um, he, on the other hand, I know like an FBI profiler like John Douglas believes uh-huh. that they never want to get caught, subconsciously or consciously. They don't. Well, uh, I, I kind of disagree with him on that. Yeah, that's just one man's opinion. Yeah. Um, but with with Bill Howell, he has told me that um, when he decided finally he'd been fantasizing all through his 20s about, about raping prostitutes, it's, it's sick, but he's got this target group of drug-addicted prostitutes. They all do. In his mind. And, and this is, these people to him are just objects. They are not human beings. And that's yes. why when people say to me, are you afraid of him? Will he hurt you? Oh, no, I'm not a hooker, therefore I'm safe. Well, <laughs> first off, he's in high max for 360 years. I think I'm safe. Uh, unless there's an earthquake or something like yeah. that. Uh, but, you know, I, he did tell me that when he finally took the step going from inner fantasy to reality of, I'm going to do it tonight, and he planned it. He went to a hardware store. He got the items he would need to hold this person captive. Um that that he knew that at that time Connecticut had the death penalty back in 2003, and he knew that if he got caught uh, for this crime, that he would immediately get death. And so his reasoning was, why not just keep doing it as much as I want now? Because you know, same same punishment for seven as if I did one. That's right. Once you've done it, it doesn't make any difference. Once you cross that line into homicide, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't make any difference. Right. And so, so what's, uh, what's to stop you? Yeah, nothing. Uh, as is the, uh, I think it's Brent Turvey, perhaps, that uh, wrote the article of the book where it talks about that they're not that deep. Uh, you know, it's, it's doing the same play over and over again, and you're simply casting new people in the part of the victim. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny you say that because he told me that when he was committing these crimes, he 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 envisioned himself as playing a part of a bad guy in a movie. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just keep doing the same thing. It, it comes down to what's the big motivation? And I think it's the same as uh, maybe Brent said. This is uh, you go to a, a restaurant, a nice Chinese restaurant for the egg foo young. You tried it, you liked it, you go back for more. There you go. And that's kind yeah, of. Yeah, and and you know sometimes in the book I I, I feel like, damn, I I wish he was more complicated and darker. I wish I had a Hannibal Lecter type guy. Yeah, but and you, you wish you and you wish you had a lot of uh, uh, complexities to unravel. And egg foo young. And egg foo right. young. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's it's actually it's more like Campbell's chicken soup. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's not that they're they're deep. It's that they're in, remarkably shallow. Speaking of which, Mark Boyer has a question. Gee, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Pearl. I appreciate it. Um, so he he did. Closer to the his, microphone, please. From his perspective, what he could to conceal his identity. But he made one mistake that got him caught. What was that? He made one mistake? It got him caught. That got him caught. I'm trying to think of where you're going because it's a big book. Uh, the uh, <laughs> the victim he knew. The victim he knew. The victim he knew, right, because all six of the victims he were strangers to him. These were women that he picked up on the street. He did not tell them his name. Uh, and and I don't think he would have ever been caught if he kept soliciting these women that, that were strangers. But what happened with the victim he knew, who he was serving the 15-year sentence for uh, murdering when I initially met him, uh, he he was an acquaintance of hers. He would give her and her boyfriend drives uh, back and forth to cop drugs in exchange for a little bit of gas money over the course of a, a month's period. Um, he was not a drug addict himself. He just was there to help them uh, get a little extra gas money for himself. And so unlike all of his other victims, he did not premeditate that crime. What happened was... Uh, they were he was engaged in a sexual transaction with this woman and she refused to complete the transaction ooh bad and news yeah it infuriated him I, I get I get mad about that too <laughs> you mean you get that far with an individual no nothing even pisses me off okay, more that's what I thought 
I'm mad before I even go to pick her up for the date. In this case, it wasn't age-related. It it was because she chose to not finish him off. Okay, I'm going a little too far. No, you can't go too far on this show. No, no, you got it right, by the way. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. It's always age-related when it comes to Burrow. (laughs) So he got angry, and um, that was, you know, he always took pride on the fact that he was totally in control of whether he could turn on the switch or turn off the switch with these crimes. And it was always based on his lawn care schedule the following day. If he did not have lawns to mow, then he knew that the night before he would be free to go on this spree. Um, but in the case of Nilsa Arizmendi, he did have a lawn care schedule the next day. He didn't plan to kill her when she walked into that van, but his anger got the best of him. She was his fourth victim, and what that told me was that he was losing control. Yeah, and they hate that. Mm-hmm. That's that's the big part of the expression trigger. With Robert Lee Yates, the Spokane serial killer, uh, he had this woman come into the van to perform oral sex, and after uh, oh, a few minutes, uh, he couldn't get it up, and uh, so we shot her in the head. But uh, she said... Uh, she gave really good head, and she zigged when she he thought she was going to zag, and as a result, the bullet went across her skull instead of into it. Oh. She thought that he hit her over the head with something because he was so frustrated, but actually he tried to shoot her, but she didn't realize that for months later when she was in a car accident in Tacoma, and they did an x-ray, and they said, you have bullet fragments in your skull. Oh. I do? That's when, girl. that's when she figured out. She says, yeah, she thinks it's a combination of the grace of God and her oral sex technique. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, you know, in Howell's case, he told me he had solicited over a 1,000 prostitutes over the years. Simultaneously, and keep in mind, throughout his 20s, he was incarcerated. So in those pockets of time when he's a free man, he's he's meeting with a lot of these women every night. And simultaneously, he's always got girlfriends on the side and having an active sex life with his girlfriend. Good for so him. It's kind of, well, it's kind of no wonder to me, of, of course, you know, and even in the commission of the crimes, you know, these were repeated rapes over a 12-hour period. And his defense attorneys, who I got to know pretty well over the course of the last three years in writing this book, um, you know, one of them said to me, do you really think he's telling you the truth about this incredible, you know, potent sexual appetite? I mean, he's like, uh, you know, how can how can you, you know, every hour on the hour over 12 hours? Well, maybe he was still 18 in his mind. Maybe so. It doesn't matter in your mind. <laughs> Let me explain, bro. Nothing you don't already know. It was never enough. Right. Thanks, Mark. Mark knows. Yeah. It was Mark never enough for him. Of course, not. Trying to of course not. Of course not. Of course not. Of course it was. Yeah, because we'll see every every victorious situation situation is another validation of his sexual power, P O W E R, which was something that he uh, he needed to have that validation. Why did you have to spell the word power? Because it's the name of a radio station I worked for once. Thank you. <laughs> power one hundred six. Ah, you got it. Well, look who's here. Seventy <laughs> Jackie you know, Mark Boyer. Well, one of his victims was a transgender man. When you talk about, like, that alpha male, right. you know, ego. And so he 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 thought this man was a woman when he... Oh, same thing with Kirby Anthony. He got he so mad that. when he found out he solicited a transgendered that he murdered him. That's what happened. That's what happened. And, you know, that, that one victim uh, was the only one that was not raped uh, because Bill Howe had no interest in, in men. So he, he just punched him out a couple times and quickly strangled him, and, and I asked him about that, and, and he said, you know, I, I felt I was doing a favor to the next guy, keeping the next guy from getting duped. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well he's got a line of reasoning. Yeah. <laughs> There'd be other ways to do it. You know, yeah, I think you're right. out of the van. Don't you think? Maybe. Yeah. Kill you don't have to kill people to protect others. Well, you may could be. You know, it depends on the situation. How about no? No, you don't. Yeah, right. No. And the interesting little sidelight here, uh, see if there's any similarities with Kirby Anthony, who raped and murdered his aunt and her two little kids, uh, was not the least bit upset when the cops referred to him as a baby killer. But when they mentioned that he had a head from a transgendered, 
and murder. He was furious. Mm -hmm. Oh, he was so upset by the yeah. inference that uh, that he had sex with a transgendered. That mm -hmm. upset him. Not that he killed little kids. Mm. Well, I mean, that could piss you off, don't you think? Well, yeah. Okay. I've been in that situation. I just said, well, was, you, you know, if a six turned out to be nine, right. Jimi Hendrix said. Hello. <laughs> You men are crazy. I'm yeah. starting to wonder what I got myself into. <laughs> oh, come on. You oh, We're sympathetic to your situation. you got a true crime writer who knows the hell you've been through. <laughs> and you and have a guy with a degree in journalism who's uh, also been a disc jockey, and he's been through hell. <laughs> and I, I don't know anything. I, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. You guys are wonderful. But you, you're making the, the Connecticut rock station guys look like Mother Teresa here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we have my friend Flying Floyd Wright yeah. in, in Connecticut. Very, yeah. very popular disc jockey in uh, Hartford. I received an award from the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Did you? Yeah, a Lifetime yeah. Achievement Award. Did you? Cost me a pizza and a Coke to get that. There you go. Cool. This goes to show. Now you're just boasting. Yeah, I am. Oh, watch this. I just got in the WERS Hall of Fame in Boston. How he about did. that? He did. I did. Honest to goodness. And that hall is very narrow. It's uh, me and three other guys. <laughs> Have you met any of those three other guys? Yes. Oh, okay. Now, back to the book, His Garden. Yes. Let's talk about the book. The book, His Garden, by attorney Ann K. Howard. Mark Boyer has another question. Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, why do you think he decided to tell you his story? Well, uh, you know, some other reporters had tried to, you know, reach out to him and get him to talk, and he didn't want to talk to anyone else. I think he was naturally shrewd to the fact that these guys just wanted uh, the, the quick story, mm -hmm. um, and he didn't trust them, probably rightly so. Uh, and in contrast with me, you know, I, I took it real slow and and uh, just wanted to get to know him as a person and reassured him that anything he had to tell me would not be publicly conveyed until after the legal resolution and after the book got published. Um, in fact, um, you know, his defense counsel, two ex wonderful guys, I love these two guys, they contacted me, you know, within the first few weeks of me writing to Howell, because they said to him, stay away from that woman. Mm -hmm. And Howell would stand up to them as time went on and said, no, I want to keep writing her. And it was strongly against their legal advice. And uh, so finally they contacted me and uh, said, you know, let's meet, let's sit down, let's talk about your intentions, what you plan to do, and what our goal is as his counsel. We've got to protect our client. And so what we did was we, we drew the boundaries. You know, we came to a game plan of, okay, I, I, I won't, you know, get involved in the litigation. I won't ask him certain questions until legal resolution. So Howell also had that in the back of his mind that his attorneys, knew of of my involvement and while they didn't necessarily approve it uh as time went on his attorneys and i were calling each other back and forth to inform each other of ongoing developments with this guy in prison so i think that gave him a, a sense of safety as well but um i don't know overall i think i just tried to treat him like a human mm -hmm. being and not always, but, you know, ask about all the salacious Yeah, wasn't that, but wasn't that hard uh, to do, knowing what you knew? And, and tell me about the first time you actually physically met with him and, he, uh, and him opening up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first time was the only time I ever felt nervous. Uh, my, actually, at that time, my, my real fear was what if I go into this visit with the phone and the plexiglass and this no-contact setting, and what if we have nothing to talk about? Because, you know, with these prison visits, you're stuck there for an hour and a half. Right. You, you know, it's not like a soap opera where you hang up the phone and you storm out of the room. You know, you, the doors are locked, and you have to sit there with this person for an hour and a half. So I was worried, what are we going to talk about? Um, but I was, you know, I was nervous. Is this going to be a creepy guy? What's he, what's he going to say? Uh, but, but within minutes, I felt really at ease, actually. And what surprised me most in, in, in the first visit, and, and it's repeated itself in almost every one of our other visits, is that he, he often cries. Um, sometimes throughout the visit, he's got big tears streaming down his face. Yeah, but they all think serial killers are famous for crying. 
I mean, in the, the handbook of serial killer performances, yeah, they cry. They can cry like uh, Margaret O'Brien. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what are they? Well, yeah. His wasn't it wasn't a histrionic crying. You know, I, I've had clients over the years with you know uh, personality disorders and the narcissism mm. and stuff where they can really. Oh, you must have been in radio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And the crocodile tears and whatnot, you know, so I kind of can get a sense of when it's inauthentic. But, you know, it wasn't the babbling, you know, boo-hooing. It was more just this silent, just no noise, just, just clear tears rolling down his face. But it was only in reference to certain things. So it would be when we talked about the mother of his children, when we talked about the children he had not seen for 20 years, these two kids. Well, that's because we it relates to his personal pain and not to the pain of anyone else. Yes, yes, it was. He he has never cried about the victims. Never. I mean, he's never even expressed remorse to me about. You that's because he, he doesn't say, see them as people. No, he doesn't. He they're, doesn't. they're just uh, props in a play. But he did express remorse to the families for their pain. Yeah, he he does express remorse to the families for their pain, but they're they're people to him in a way that the victims weren't because they're not engaged in that lifestyle. But you know, even at the sentencing hearing in November 2017 and and also at the guilty plea hearing, um he, he, he just broke down. I mean, he, he was just weeping. And at those hearings, he was, it did not move me in any way mm -hmm. because he was crying for himself. Yeah. It was a self-pity cry. Yeah, if you're going to be crying over what you've done, you do it after the first one. You don't say, oh, boy, I'm going to go yeah. go back and do that several more times. Right. Yeah, and he, and he said if he had the opportunity, he'd keep doing it. Of course. He tried it, he liked it, he went back for another helping. Mm -hmm. I'm that way. <laughs> but I don't kill people. Yet. Oh, is that right? That's one of my yets. Okay. Okay. Well, that's yeah. good, because I give you rights. I don't uh, want to have to write a book about you, Pearl. No, no, no. Other, uh, I wrote a book, a uh, fiction work, where I'm the hero, because no one else was going to write a book with me as the hero, so I figured I'd better do it myself. How did it sell? Not well. Great <laughs> reviews, but no one, but no one buys it. <laughs> Which one is that? That's a headlock. I think uh, it's the title. That is the title. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're in the book? Yeah, well, I'm under an assumed name, but everyone knows it's me. It says so right at the beginning. Uh, and, and I'm in that you know, book? No, you're. I wrote it before I knew you, Howard. Okay. I, I had one review on Amazon this week. It, it was a. I, so far, all the reviews are five star and four star. Thank God, knock on wood, but God knows that's going to end. Oh, oh that's going to end real fast, believe me. Oh, yeah. Trolls yeah. out there. And I got a two star review, and it was someone who had a personal vendetta against me behind the scenes uh, with respect to the book. And I, I don't want to go into it. Right. But she said. Oh, throw that like, out there. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and I can't go and ask you about that. I, I can't, no, I'm, I'm not going there. I'm not engaging in that toxic energy that's and, right and and she and she said something like this book is more about ann howard and how she thinks she's so unique oh yeah terminally unique killer. okay so it's a she we've got that <laughs> yep yep but you know what amazon did is it, uh, you know i was all upset they about put that as the number one critical review <laughs> they took it down oh, they, they did I, they don't do that for me <laughs> <laughs> they leave my one star reviews up there <laughs> Well, was it full of personal attack and hostility? Your oh, see, that's where you had the edge on me. Uh, mine were the, the, uh, the perpetrator killed everyone by strangling them to death. The review said, far too much about ballistics in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I go, what the, what the hell book were you reading? <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, there are people who are, dare I say, I can't call them professional trolls because no one's paying them. But they delight, and if you're a true crime writer and you're getting four and five star reviews, they are intentionally, even if they've never read the book, going to go on there and give you a one star review, and you can usually uh, catch these people real easy, because it'll begin, I have never written a review before, but this book was so dreadful, I had to take time out of my busy schedule of doing nothing of any importance to attack this book I and the author. so dreadful, I didn't even read, read it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even get past the the, uh, the copyright notice. 
I, I did have another person behind the scenes on, on my Facebook, my Serial Murders in Connecticut Facebook page, say something to that effect of, um, you know, you, you, you just have, you, you're so uh, uncaring towards the victims, making money off their blood. Oh, yeah. Um, I, did, I didn't read the book, but that's what I got <laughs> yeah. from the back cover. <laughs> I got that from the back cover. There was even uh, the fellow who was, uh, what's his name, Bezos, the attorney for, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, there was a whole organized thing on Facebook of write bad reviews of this book. Don't bother to read it. Just inundate with bad reviews to keep people from buying it because we don't want him making any money off of this. Mm-hmm. And I Sounds didn't like think... a worthy crusade. Yeah, as if they have nothing better to do in their spare time. Apparently not. Apparently yeah. not. Uh, uh, if you're going to write more of these, of course, you may already know this amazing technique, but from one professional to another... Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to uh, uh, interview uh, the late great Phil Champagne uh, for the book The Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne, about uh, ten other authors had uh, gone to see him in prison and said, Hi, I'm an author and I want to do a book about you. And he said no to all of them. Mm-hmm. So I figured, well, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I went in there wearing jeans and my St. Tisha sweatshirt. And uh, we got a little uh, styrene coffee and a styrofoam cup, and he, this was in a federal prison, so we were sitting outside at a picnic table. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't say anything. For a long time, I just drank my coffee, and then I just turned to him and said, tell me, Phil, how good were the bills? Oh. Well, criminal pride, he starts talking about how damn good the bills were. I said, well, what I don't understand, though, Phil, is if it had been me, I would have swapped the bills out down on Sprague Avenue where the drug dealers are, you know, give him a you know a phony hundred and get the change and, and take the crack, throw it out the window if you want. You know, why did you go do it at the Frontier Pies? <laughs> he said, because I, I'm 67 years old. I don't know anything about drug dealers, but I do know how to buy a pie. <laughs> you know, and I never said a word about doing the book. And before I go to leave, he goes, "Well, are you going to do the book or not?" <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So he was begging you to do it. Right, right, right. Because I didn't come on with, hi, I'm an author, and I want to do a book. Well, we just talk shop. You, <laughs> you know, my my strategy with that, the reason I did that was because um, I, I I just can't get Joe McGinnis out of my mind. And what he went through with Jeffrey McDonald, the, the doctor who killed his wife and two children, mm-hmm. when he wrote Fatal Vision. Um, you know, and then Jeff. So I had it in my mind. I'm going to be straight up with this guy from day one because I don't want this guy suing me someday, uh, like Jeffrey McDonald did to, and he did it successfully. They settled for a lot of money with Joe McGinnis because he felt that Joe had said, "I'm going to write as if you are an innocent man, and that this appeal should go through that we're we're discussing." And then Joe McGinnis, as he got to know Jeffrey McDonald, thought this guy is clearly a sociopath. He did it. And in the end, he, he came to that conclusion, and Jeffrey McDonald felt... He deceived. He was deceived. He felt deceived. Right. He thought it was a fraud. Well, at least Phil knew, I, Phil knew I was an author. He knew that's why I was there. I just mm-hmm. didn't say it. You yeah. know, I just talked shop with him. You know? Right. Well, what if we'd done this instead? If I'd have been you, I would have tried this. You know? Yeah. And we just hit it off, you know, person to person. And well, you had chemistry with him. Yeah. Clearly, there was something about you that attracted him. And it's my boyish good looks. <laughs> Despite my advanced age, the secret, I'll tell you right now, is oily skin and hair dye. Makes you 10 years younger. <laughs> no surgery? No, no surgery. surgery. No, not yet. I'm working I, up to it. I just don't want you to get lip injections. Oh, hell no. Like those big clown lips on oh, women, no. and I don't think they would look good on you. I mean, either. I am a lipless old Jew, and uh, <laughs> that's just the way it is. You too? Yeah. You know, but I, uh, as far as kissing goes, despite the fact I have no lips, I practice a lot when I'm alone, so I'm not oh. bad. Okay. <laughs> I used to do that when I was, like, 12 on the shower wall. Yeah. You know, where, where you're practicing, you're trying to figure out how you're going to be doing this someday. Yeah. Yeah, I used to do the same thing with a mirror. It's a good I, thing I, I didn't I, marry a guy. How'd that practice work out for you? <laughs> you, you married a shower wall. <laughs> That's right, I did. Yeah. I married a Canadian, same difference. Yeah, That's okay. I married a Norwegian, same difference. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. 
Yeah, unfortunately. Well, you know, I got to tell you something. Talking to you, I, I just wish to God I met you three years ago. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> I, I have been in desperate need of support through this, um, and and I've just felt like the Lone Ranger. I feel like, and I and I have felt very attacked uh, behind the scenes, oh, yes. publicly as well. And and I, I I I feel like I need to join some kind of a true crime writer support group where we. Can well, you know that's, that that you're peers. not far off, and I'll even tell you this uh from having been in true crime now for longer than some people have been alive including the victims and uh that is the uh, even in the world of in the world the mystery writing world everyone is incredibly supportive mm-hmm. and you could sit down with lawrence block who you know is a fantastic writer he's got several series and you could have one book out and he will be a hundred percent supportive of you in every way possible mm-hmm. and the rest of the mystery writers will in true crime there are sadly those who I don't know it's like they're afraid that you somehow you're going to get some degree of prominence that that they should have or something mm. those you you kind of politely avoid but mm. between there are many of us true crime writers who have gone through exactly what you're going through mm. we know what it's like and we are very mutually supportive in fact I'll give you another little warning here you will discover that in many states if you want to go in and interview a prisoner talk to a prisoner and if you want to do a book, they won't let you in. But if you write a blog, they will. Hmm. Figure that one out. I can't figure that out. Neither can I. Try Texas. Talk to Susie Spencer. She'll tell you well, all about I've, it. I've got a blog, so that helps. There you go. Don't tell them you're a published author. I see. <laughs> you just say, okay. I, I write That's an good. inconsequential blog. What are you oh, talking okay. about? I'll what? just say I'm an amateur. I don't know right, what I'm doing. Right. I don't know what I'm doing. What do you blog about? Mm-hmm. Well, you what do I blog? Would, are you asking me? Yes, yeah. I am. Yeah, what's, that, what, what, what's your address for your blog? Um, you know, it's a weird address because I started the blog about some unsolved Route 8 murders, so something like AKH Route 8 or something. But if, if you just if you just did in the search, a Google search, serial murders in Connecticut, you're going to find my blog. So I, I started writing about some unsolved uh, murders along the highway just like 10 miles away from where I live because when we moved here five years ago, I kept hearing about all these bodies that were being found along the highway. and. And then it, it just evolved where I started writing about all sorts of murders in Connecticut. And, of course, then I did this one. Mm-hmm. Now, I got a question that has nothing to do with any of this. Okay. <laughs> the great jacket that you're wearing in your publicity photo, the, the black one. Yeah. That's a great jacket. I have one very similar. Is yours leather or is it imitation? It's false. It's, it's fake. Leather. So is it's- mine. Can I tell you what happened to that jacket? Yes, please do. That picture was taken. Uh-huh. Uh, I, brilliant woman that I am, um, it, it looked kind of wrinkled. And you so ironed I, it? <laughs> I had something to go to, and I don't iron. I hate ironing, but I had one of those steam things, oh, you no. know, that you steam your clothes with. And so I just put it on the hanger, and I steamed it, and it melted. Melted. The jacket melted. Yeah. I, that is fantastic. That's I could have, I could have warned you about that too. <laughs> you melted a jacket too. Well? No, I've got one though like that. It also is full. This is great. Thanks yeah. Come. The book is called His Garden by Anne K. Howard, crime hottie and jacket melter. She will be back. Yes, I hope. Thank you so much for sharing the hour with us. You guys rule. Thank you. Hey, bro. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence on OutlawRadioLive.com for the Lightning Loud. Go.